I'm just going to read a few verses before Phil comes up. So from Acts 13, 1 to 3, and then Acts 14, 21 to 27. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And then in chapter 14, 21 to 27, they preached the good news in that city. This was in Antioch. And they won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Oh, thank you. We look forward to what the Lord has laid on your heart, Phil. Um, thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to be back here at Kerrang after a few years not having been here. And thanks so much for your welcome. Fred gave us a great welcome and all others of you that we've met as you came into the church. And, and thank you, Max, too, for the way you're leading the service and for the wonderful songs that we've been able to sing. And it's great to be here with family, um, our own physical family, as well as uh, believers that we're one family in Christ, aren't we? And great to have Ken here, too, who is very much um, a part of our team in terms of ministry with the Fania, some of you here have been for many years too as you've prayed for us and supported us financially. We did bring some literature that you might be interested to have a look at, um, magazines and this is for prayer material and uh, there's uh, information and opportunities to serve the Lord, not just in ministries like we have had in very much um, a pioneer ministry uh, with unreached peoples, but in medical work is teachers, university work, uh, all sorts of ministries uh, with all sorts of gifts uh, that people, believers have, can be used in ministry with our mission. So we'd encourage you to look through the literature there and you're welcome to take anything that's there. We have a burden to share with you this morning about 
partnership in mission. And uh, as we were listening to Max read the scriptures, do you notice that after the apostles, um, Apostle Barn- um, Paul had been sent out with Barnabas, that they returned to the church after their first missionary journey. And it says, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. And we would like to share something of that this morning, what we believe God has done through us. But when we say us, we don't mean just us, but we mean those of you who have been partnering with us too and others, and I'll share a little bit more about that in a minute. So maybe we could just pray before I begin to share from, from the scriptures and from what God's laid on our hearts. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege it is to know you. And we think of so many people outside of these walls that do not know you. They don't even have a clue who Jesus is or why he came. Many people today, in, even in our country. And then there are people in places like Niger and in other areas around the world, so many millions who have no one to tell them. Lord, move in our hearts so that we might understand more of what it means to be partners together with you. Lord, help me, I pray, to speak your word clearly and to share in such a way that you will be able to touch our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the reading this morning, we saw that there was the partnership that was between God and the local church and the local believers. We saw too that there was a partnership between the local church and their missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. And then there was a partnership that existed between the missionaries themselves, Paul and Barnabas, and the others that were with them on the team when they went on other mission, when Paul went on other missionary journeys. But we see that in chapter 13 that the church said, while they were worshipping, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them, they were sent off. But do you remember how the Apostle Paul was called even before they were sent off, sent off by the church at, uh, at um, Antioch? If you look, for instance, in Acts chapter 26, in Paul's testimony of his conversion, when he's speaking to Agrippa, it says there in verse 15, as Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road, it's, he, it says, the Lord Jesus said to him, now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness. You have seen of me and, all, and, and what I will show you. And he goes on and he says, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the Apostle Paul already had been called on his conversion. He knew that God was sending him. And when Ananias came to him, when he was there groping in his blindness, and Ananias came to anoint him and to speak to him and to share with him more of the message that God had for him, Ananias said to him, the Lord has show, will show you how much you will suffer for his name. So the Apostle Paul knew from the beginning that God had called him to take the gospel 
uh, to the Gentile word and it would involve suffering. But here, he and Barnabas are being commissioned. And then in Acts chapter 13, we have an account of how they're bringing the gospel to these people, many of them idolaters, and how the gospel touches their hearts and they become believers. And then they return on their way back to Antioch, having visited, revisiting the places that they went to, encouraging the believers and putting leadership in place. And so they arrive back to report to the church all that God had done through them, just as I, I said a few minutes ago. But do you realise that they were workers together with God in bringing people out of darkness to light, out of idolatry to come to understand who Jesus was, out of slavery to Satan? And we have the great privilege and opportunity as believers to partner together in the local church and more widely to do that. And I wonder sometimes if we fail to realise the immensity of this privilege of being able to join together and have our prayers focused on people who are lost and who are bound by Satan and who are, uh, who are enslaved by him. And whether they are enslaved by materialism or whether it's by idolatry in the sense of idols, man-made idols, or whether it's the materialism of our society or humanism, people are lost and they're heading to a Christless eternity. And maybe you have relatives like that and, and neighbours, we all have, but we are called to be partners together to bring them the gospel and so, so that they might come to know him. And in this morning, we want to thank you personally for the way that you have encouraged us and supported us prayerfully and financially for many years, those of you who have. And it's been so important because without your uh, support and partnership, we wouldn't be able to do that. And the Fulani people themselves want to thank you for that. And I pray that through what we share this morning and what Carol shared, it might encourage you. But we also want to illustrate to you how God has taken the initiative and orchestrated the circumstances in our ministry. Look what he did for Paul and Barnabas, how as they went to different villages and towns and they shared the message, God touched their hearts. And we want to share with you something of how we saw that happening in our ministry, how we've seen it over the years. We too believed that God had called us to go uh, to serve him far from our own home and country. We believed that God had called us as young people in our 20s to go to Niger, to the Fulani people. And we believed that we too had been sent so that we might bring them the light of the gospel share with them the majesty of Jesus, what God had done for them. And uh, so we prepared and as we uh, finished Bible training and had some other experience before we left for Niger when God uh, put on our heart the Fulani people, his herders, then we set off for Niger. But what could Carol, a farmer's daughter, grown up in the Mallee, what could I do? a farmer who left school to work on the family farm and from that was called to go to Bible school, what could we do? We weren't Hudson Taylor or we weren't um, uh, Elliot, the one who said, he is no fool who gives, what, gives up, gives what he cannot uh, keep to gain what he cannot lose. So we think of great missionary pioneers and we weren't like that and we felt so inadequate. 
And we realised we had this great task of bringing the good news to Fulani people, people who are Muslims. So we would, when we started our journey in 1974, the local church that commissioned us, we shared with them our great need of their prayer and their support because we felt so inadequate. But we went with the knowledge that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all people groups. It was in his strength If anything was to be done, it would be done through him and not through our own expertise. And so as we left for Niger, we were going to work among the Fulani people in Niger. You can see where the red marks are on the map. That was the areas that we have focused on the most in our time out there. But the Fulani are pastoralists. They have cattle and sheep and goats and their life revolves around the pastoralist people. So I'd just like to set the context of our ministry for those of you who haven't heard us share before. The Fulani number about 40 million and are scattered across the Sahel below the Sahara Desert. Many of the Fulani are nomads. They have to carry everything they own on the back of their donkeys. They have little or no shelter from the elements from the heat of the sun during the long dry season, even when the temperatures are over 40 degrees. They don't have any protection from the rain, the the nomadic ones. And then there are semi-sedentary Fulani people who farm as well, and we also have ministry among them. They value highly patience, mutual respect and hospitality. They welcome strangers, and that was a great advantage for us because they would welcome us to their encampments when they hadn't even got to know us or learned to trust us. But the Fulani are Muslim, and in fact, it was the Fulani who Islamized much of West Africa by jihad in the, in the early 1800s. One of their kings was a very a strong Fulani uh, Muslim who wanted to follow the example of Muhammad by forcing people to become Muslims or killing them or making them slaves. We realised the importance of prayer as we began to work among these people because as we chose to live among them, we found that life was so different from anything we'd experienced before. We felt the loneliness, not having a team around us, And so many questions we had that we didn't have answers to as we started to build relationships with people and wondering how we would ever be able to make the gospel known to them. And then, of course, they don't speak English and we had to learn their language and you felt even so uh, helpless when you were living among adults as an adult and you couldn't even speak the language uh, to the ability of a a little child who was just learning the language at first. And so it was... Uh, There were many struggles that we had. And uh, we um, also found just the intensity and the darkness of the Islamic culture, almost overwhelming at times. But people were praying for us, and we had asked people to pray for us in that first term. We particularly emphasised these verses, and we asked, would you please, please pray for us as Paul prayed for the Colossian believers that we would work, live lives that are worthy of Jesus, that we might please him in every way, that we might bear fruit in good work and grow in our knowledge of God, that we'd be strengthened by God's power according to his glorious might so that we might have great endurance and patience. And I can tell you that after about 18 months, I was ready to quit and go home. And as I was going through a very dark or difficult period of 
enduring these verses. People were praying for us. And I remember how God spoke to me one day as I was just wanting to go home, except the airport was so far away. And also, what would I say to you people who are praying for us and supporting us if we'd quit and got home? And it seemed to me that Jesus said to me, what would have happened if when things got hard for me, when I was facing the cross and when I was heading toward the cross, what if I had said, Father, I had enough, I want to go home? What would have happened? And I began to think, well, I'm not suffering anything like Jesus did. And yet, and uh, what will happen to the Fulani people if we quit and go home, the ones that he wanted us to work among? And so we continued on and uh, um, I guess we're called to sacrifice, aren't we? Remember how Paul wrote to young Timothy and he said, join with me in suffering for the gospel. The gospel is worth suffering for. And I think we in our Western society don't understand that very well. Not that I'm trying to say that we suffered a lot. We did miss out on Max and Margie's wedding and other things. And that is suffering because we would have loved to have been there. But there are all sorts of suffering that one goes through. And some of our colleagues and friends and family that we know have suffered far greater than us in terms of their obedience and discipleship for Jesus. And so as we began to live and work among these people, how could we start to share the gospel with them? How could we relate to them to build trust? And we, I guess, uh, thought about what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the first Corinthians uh, and he said to them that uh, he had become a slave to all that he might become, uh, that he might win people to Christ. Remember how he said that? A slave to all. Not just to the nice people, but to all. And he said, to the Jew, I became a Jew, and to the Greek, a Greek. And so we realized that we needed to become a Fulani, or like a Fulani. We can't really become one. And so it meant that building relationships. And we started with our language helper and his family and the extended family. And so the circle became wider. We went to the people's wells where they have to go for water for their animals and uh, for their household use and spend many hours around a well just greeting people and sitting there in the shade as uh, people waited to, uh, for the heat to dissipate a bit and move off with their animals or while they just socialised. Came, I came to realise the importance of identifying with them in the way I dressed. And so I began to dress more like they do. And I found that a bit uh, challenging at first, uh, wearing this long ground gown, you know, I felt a bit like a lady's dress, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but it was amazing how the Fulani people accepted me so much greater and such more easily and gave me respect. The young men wouldn't shake my hands in the market because they saw that I was dressed in a respected way that young people don't uh, shake the hands of older people or people who who, who are teachers and, and so on, religious teachers, and I was looked upon as a teacher. And so um, also we met lots of people at the weekly markets in the bigger villages. We went for days at a time, sleeping in the back of our land cruiser or beside it in a, in a little cornstalk shelter. And uh, so as we stayed out with the people and as people began to invite us to their encampments, we got to know more and more people. And they wondered why we had come. What are these white people doing living out here among us? And so at first some of them thought we'd come to... Um, working for the government to take their children from them and put them in Western-style schools. And the Fulani were opposed to that because they only accept Islamic 
education, not Western-style education. And so as we came to an encampment, you'd find little children scattering and trying to hide behind trees, and, uh, and they would uh, run off over the sand dunes because they thought we'd come to take them to school. And, but then they began to realise that wasn't the case at all. And we told them that we had come because... We had heard about them and that we were herders in Australia and we wanted to share with them the fact that God loves them and that God had prepared a way of forgiveness for them so that they too could know eternal life because in Islam there is no forgiveness. They do not know God. They only know about Allah. And there is a great fear of hell and of judgment. And in spite of all their religiosity and all of their praying that they do five times a day and the fasting they are lost and they are without hope. And uh, so as we be continue to live among them and spend hours sitting on grass mats, drinking mat, tea and drinking the milk that they brought us, many calabashes because each family wanted us to taste a bit of their cow's milk. And uh, Carol doesn't really like milk much, but anyway, I enjoyed it. And uh, even though it had gone sour and there were flies floating in it and all that, but uh, we built special visitor shelters at our place so that when the Fulani that we were getting to know who lived out in the bush and out in the remoter areas, when they came to the market at our village on a Wednesday, they had a place of shade in the shelter and we could sit with them and listen to them talking. And, and uh, that's how my language really began to develop and Carol's as well. And we just built relationships and we attended funerals and wedding celebrations and cultural events to show that we wanted to uh, show empathy with them. Carol's a nurse and so medicine became a bridge and that was wonderful to see how that helped us to show that we cared for these people. When our children began to be born, um, then that was uh, another great event because uh, the, the Fulani warmed the children and sharing our children with them. This was something that also helped them open up their hearts to us. However, the burden was growing in our hearts. How could we share the gospel with these Fulani people? Because our language was still so insufficient. And we didn't have any Fulani believers to help us to know what terminology to use. And we had a Cameroon Fulani Bible, but the dialect was different and it was hard to use that effectively. And, and so that was a burden too. And yet all the time, every day, there were people dying around us. The Fulani have a saying that death is easy. It's life that's hard. And we saw children dying and young men and women, and especially young girls dying in childbirth and it was just so sad and we couldn't share with them the good news of Jesus because we didn't know the language well enough. And so anyway, we headed off and I remember one time this Fulani in the market, this Fulani religious teacher, he was sitting on a mat and there sitting on the mat with his legs crossed, he had his Quranic books in front of him, the Quran and other books. And as, I, as he was sitting there, tears were running down his face and dropping on the mat. And he was asked, why are you crying, Malam? Why are you crying? What's wrong? And he said, I'm lost. I'm lost. In spite of all of his religion, he knew that there was no forgiveness in Islam. And so we had this burden, how could we share with them? And so it was that we headed off uh, for supplies one uh, day, about 700 kilometres further um, west of where we lived. We would go every 
maybe three months to get supplies. And we went to our SIM headquarters where we have a guest house and we stayed a few days there while we got supplies and caught up with some of our SIM colleagues. But while we were there in the guest house, we met a Fulani, the first Fulani believer we'd ever met. But he was from Nigeria and he had come up to Niger to share the gospel with Niger Fulani uh, for a couple of weeks and he was on his way back to Nigeria. So he stopped in our mission guest house and we greeted him in Fulfuli and he, he nearly fell over backwards because he had never heard a, a, a European speak his language before. And we shared with him how we had come out, called of God to share the good news of Jesus with the Fulani in Niger. And so he really encouraged us and he said, would you come over and work with us? And he said, well, I'd like to, he said, but I've got commitments down in Nigeria to the south. And but he said, maybe I can visit you sometime. But he said, I can give you some cassettes that you can use to play to the Fulani. And these cassettes I've just recently prepared, six messages on, uh, um, no, 23 messages on six cassettes. You know, the old cassettes. Uh, some of you young people might know what a cassette is. I don't know, but uh, us older ones know, don't we? And uh, so he said, uh, it's chronological teaching from Genesis right through the scripture to prepare the Fulani to know who Jesus is and why he came and who he is and what he did and so on. And uh, so that was wonderful. And so we took these cassettes back and it was just amazing how the Fulani just were glued to these cassettes because he was a Fulani, one of their own, speaking the message and he spoke it and, and, and the way he taught, it resonated with me. Each message was about 15 minutes long. That reminds me, I suppose I should be only speaking for about 15 minutes because we started late. Uh, so um, anyway, we would use these and people would just sit around and they'd be listening and leaning forward, listening to it. And then afterwards we would discuss it and it became a foundation for my spiritual teaching because of the terminology there. And so then we depended less on cassettes, but we used cassettes to share with the nomads and the others. And so the message spread. And so uh, th that was a wonderful way we, we saw how God orchestrated that. What if we'd come a day after Umar had gone through? We wouldn't... But, God was in that timing. And then there was obstacles and opportunity, obstacles that came up that sometimes we wondered, well, were they obstacles or opportunities? You know, have you ever had that happen with you? You think, now, is the devil working here or is God allowing this to happen for some reason? And so this happened after we had been out in this area for uh, several years and opportunities were opening up. We we're getting to know more and more people. The gospel was spreading. There'd been a few people become believers. And uh, so we were becoming more and more excited and thankful for what was happening. Uh, of course, there was opposition from some of the religious clerics. But while we were becoming more and more encouraged, um, we, yes, in a most unexpected way, we got a message a telegram that came from our headquarters in Niger uh, that I was to go to, to ring them up. So I rang up. It takes a while to get through in those days. We only had a, there was no mobile phones. And so after several hours, I got through to our uh, headquarters and they said to me, they gave us this sad news. They said, our director, our SIM director, was killed in a well accident this morning. Would you please relocate to Maradi so that we might 
be able to help in leadership in the interim period while we try to sort out who should take over the leadership. So here we were faced with this dilemma. How can we leave the work here now when things are really starting to happen? Or maybe was it right to go on? But just at that time, I was reading a book of Watchman Knees, and he talked about the fact that some people see God's will in a vertical way between God and them. And they say, oh, you know, God's called me to do this, and nothing will budge them because that's what God told them to do. And he said, and maybe that's right sometimes, but he said, sometimes God expects us to also think about our brothers and sisters. And maybe if my gifts and abilities can help my church family or my, the believers around me, maybe he wants me not to hold on to that vertical view at times and to, to accept that maybe I should be prepared to um, accept a change for the sake of my brothers and sisters. Well, that was, I was reading that just when we got that message and so we believed that we should go. And so we left our little village out there in the east <coughs> packed up and took some of our belongings, got to Marathi, about 700 kilometres further west, and were exercising a role of leadership there. And uh, when we re- arrived there, we thought, well, that's the end of our ministry to the Fulani for now. And uh, we were living in the city. Fulani live out in the bush, and we were very much occupied with caring for our ministries and our mission family. We have quite a big mission family and medical work and teaching agriculture and others in reaching out with different people groups. But at that time there was a terrible famine going on and there was Fulani out in the bush that had come to the city because they'd run out of food, their animals had died, some of them had lost family members, especially older people. And uh, so there were Fulani who were there roaming the streets and uh, there were two herders in particular that were there and they had lost animals and they had come to sell native medicine to make a little bit of money. And they, as they were selling this medicine, they were at the post office uh, selling medicine and two single short-term SIM girls were there, ladies I should say, I guess. One was a teacher, one was an agriculturalist and they, high, they rented a house not far from the post office and they were posting a letter and Hotty and Dodi, these two Fulani, said, look, we've got some medicine uh, and we'd like you to, to buy it. We'd like to sell it to you. And uh, they said, oh, we don't need that. And they said, yes, you do. It's medicine that will make you beautiful. And uh, you need that. You know, these single girls, you know. And so they said, oh, no, we don't. So you come around to our place and we'll tell you why we don't need it. So they went around to Ann and Rhoda's place and they tried to share with them the message of Jesus. But they only knew the trade language to a certain point. And the Fulani know the trade language as well as their own mother tongue. But they say, well, why don't you come to church on Sunday? And if you come to church, then you'll hear more about this message. So they did come to the church with their turbans on and the other city people without any turbans sort of looked at them sideways a bit. Who are these people in the church? But um, after church, Anne and Rhoda introduced them to me. And on that very Sunday, Umaru, this Fulani evangelist who had given us the cassettes a few years before. He was back in Nigeria, he was in Maradi and we had spent the weekend together and they met him and they became, <coughs> we went around to the area where they were squatting at the edge of the town and we shared the message with them and they were ready to believe. They had heard some, a little bit of the message on cassettes over the, the, the 
previous few years because they had received some during a famine distribution, a previous famine, but they didn't really accept it, and, but they were ready now and they believed. And so when they, after they had believed, then they wanted us to go with them to share the message. This was about maybe a month, it's a little bit hard to remember now, it's a long time ago, but about maybe a month later, they wanted us to go and share the message with their relatives. So we went up there, took them up in our vehicle about an hour or two hours drive further north where the, animal, where the government had placed these herders to be able to farm uh, because the famine w- was finishing and, and so that's where they were. And There were 70 heads of families that had gathered together here why Hotty and Dodie had called them together and why they'd become to believers. And they, uh, many of those in subsequent uh, years uh, and months believed and there was a real people movement and God started a great work among them. And so it was wonderful to be able to <clears throat> do that. And so I wonder if you recognise God's sovereignty in what has happened in what I've just shared so far. Think, for instance, of it, the Fulani culture, its hospitality. Think of their background and, their, and, and the culture that we can use them as herders and sharing the message with them. For instance, Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and so on. And even their Islamic teaching, there are bridges that you can use to bring the gospel because they don't know who Jesus is really and why he came. They only think he's a great prophet. Think of meeting Umaru and those cassettes, God's timing. Think of the well accident that it moved us to central Niger and these people became, these, uh, these two men became believers and subsequently hundreds and hundreds of Fulani in that northern area became believers. Think of the way the famine brought them to the city, the meeting at the post office and just two single, not just, but the two single ladies these men talked to and they're just short-term missionaries, but look what they did because God had prepared them. <clears throat> Think of the encounter in the church with these two men when they came to hear more and Umara was there. Think of God's timing and then the spread of the message. Now, the challenge we face next was how do we partner, how do we um, teach these new believers? I was very busy in leadership. And how could we teach these new believers? Well, there were three ways in which they were taught and discipled at first. An older couple came back to the field after retiring. The wife was to teach the trade language to new missionaries and the husband accompanied her. And he was, a, a, he was an evangelist. He'd been a mission church planter for many years among the house of people. He spoke the trade language fluently. And his role had been establishing churches among the house of people. But the Fulani speak the trade language. So I asked Alvin, he came to see me, he said, my wife's got a job. She's teaching the new missionaries. What can I do? And I said, would you be willing to disciple these new believers? So he did that for six months and he taught them literacy as well. And then there was a short-term vet that came out. Uh, It was a short-term, but he grew up as a missionary kid and he knew the trade language. And being a vet, he related well to the to the herders, and then he, he took over the teaching. And then later on I met a young couple who had contact with them and they were praying about how God 
might use them. They wanted to go into cross-cultural ministry and I shared with them the great need among the Filoni and they came out and did 16 years of ministry among them. And so through them, the, 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 these people were discipled. But, and then we would also have conferences to get believers together in d- different regions and hundreds of them would come together to be encouraged over the years as the, as the, pe- as the message spread. And so it was wonderful to see how that had a great impact on uh, establishing people or encouraging them. But one day I was out at a, at a Fulani encampment where there was one of the older leaders and we had been teaching the, there and he said to me, he said, oh, he said you know, many of, my, many of our, my sheep, our sheep have died. Some of them are sick. Some of them get stolen. And I said to him, well, I said, it's been a very hard year. It's been a famine year. And of course, not just you have lost animals, but many people have. But then I realized he was talking about two-legged sheep, about people. He was talking about how the fact that there was not enough teaching for new believers out in these communities, many of them were not growing and they were falling away and, or maybe being brought back into Islam <clears throat> so it was that as a result of that, we believed that God would have us establish the Fulani Ministry Training Centre, which Carol shared about. And so again, we saw how God orchestrated this and how God used this to be a great means of teaching believers, lay people to go back to live among their own people to share the gospel. Uh, and then um, I was going to share with you about how one of the Teachers became a believer. Just briefly, um, one of the Fulani evangelists who was going to a, high, to a Bible school for le- teaching in the trade language about the time we arrived in Niger. There's very few Fulani who become believers, but he was one of them. And he was sent to share the gospel up in the north during his vacation. And when he got to this encampment where the, the Fulani were living in, around this well, um, as he was staying overnight with them and spending some time with them, the head of the family said to, uh, said to this young evangelist, Tanko, he said, look, it, the next morning he, sat, he brought out his young baby that hadn't been born very long, very young, and he said, I'd like you to pray for my baby because that's what the Muslims do. They pray for the babies. And, but this evangelist said, well, I'm not a Muslim, I'm a follower of Jesus. And he said, oh, it doesn't matter as long as you pray for him. So he took him in his arms and he prayed that God would set apart this baby to be a, a minister of the gospel, someone who would be used to share the gospel among his people. Here he's praying for this baby in a, in a Muslim encampment. So having prayed that prayer, when we opened our training centre in 2010, uh, you can see that in the picture on, uh, on the, in the screen where you can, well, is there another picture, the following picture, Carol? Uh, okay. I, I thought there was a picture of Tanko and, and uh, Tombaya. Maybe I missed it. Anyway, while we were opening the Bible school, many people came for the celebration. Some were not Fulani, were Hausa Christians, and so there needed to be interpretation. So Tanko, this evangelist that had prayed for this baby, said he would like to tell a story to the, congrega- to the people who had gathered for the opening of the Bible school. And he told this story of how he had been out um, in the 
bush and he had prayed for this baby uh, many years ago. It was, I think, about 30 years before he had prayed for this baby and he said, that, I want you to know that that baby I prayed for is standing beside me. See him there in the green? That's Tobiah, the baby that he prayed for, and he is the director of the Bible school. See how God worked? What an amazing thing. So all we can say as we look back is faithful, there's a verse in Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul says, faithful is he who called you and he will do it. And if I had time to elaborate, which we don't have, Carol shared about the ministry that we share with Ali and right out in the east where Boko Haram is active and just as we were ready having to leave, Ali came. The well ministry that started about six years ago when we did have to move, we moved to where Ardo was. See how God moved us? And then a new ministry started up with the wells among people that we had never worked with before, completely unreached peoples and all of these communities are now hearing the gospel. So can you see how God in his sovereignty has worked? So we just wanted to share that with you this morning because we want you to understand that we really are workers together with God in a great work of bringing people out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of light. We're in that together. And we want to encourage you in that partnership in your local area. And we'd encourage you to, to link with those who have been sent off further afield like ourselves because it's a wonderful privilege and honour to be workers together for the sake of the gospel and for Christ's kingdom. So we pray that God might encourage you, that you might see people being rescued from the kingdom of darkness here in Kerrang and through your prayers for others. And just remember that this partnership includes so much. It includes even praying people out to the harvest field, doesn't it? And so we can be workers together with God, workers together with each other and with our colleagues, whether they be here at home or in another culture. So we just wanted to share what we believe, something of what God has done through us as a community of believers. And we only see a little bit and we wish there'd been much more that we could have been able to do because I fear that we're not the most profitable servants, okay? So thank you, Max.